and welcome everyone to the Weekly Hoon on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey and joining us from somewhere sunny and wonderful is Peter Bale. Do tell. Hi Bernard. Hi Bernard. Kia ora, as we say up here in Northland. <laughs> yep, whereabouts where are you? You look, I've just, you look... I've just, well, I've, I've just gone overseas from Rawini to Kuhukuhu in Northland and so I've warned my friends that I'm going to do a 15-minute session with you about the state of um, Northland, the Northland economy, Maoridom, uh, COVID denialism in the North, and uh, bring in Dr. Shane Retty. Really? But not really. Not really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've, 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 been, I, I've been warned that it might be unwise to um, believe that by driving from Whangarei to um, Kohu, 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 I now understand Northland. Uh, have you been stopped at any but checkpoints? That, 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 but that hasn't, that hasn't stopped me before. <laughs> It's wonderful to see you, and I'm super jealous. Um, wonderful to see you too. Yeah, Thank cheers. You I hope you did um, manage to get the gin and tonic. I haven't got the gin and tonic yet, but um, I, I, somebody very kind may bring me something shortly. Oh, that's fantastic. I've got mine here. So what, what are we going to – now, I sent you a rundown earlier, so just so that the 62 participants do know, in fact, that we do plan this a little bit. Yes. So I, I, I think we – you know, do we, do, we, do we start on New Zealand affairs and the economy and then segue? I think so. I mean, it's it's been a hell of a week uh, here in Wellington. I'm just a couple of hundred mm. metres down the road from what you could argue was the worst um, civil dis- civil affray we've had in a long, long mm. time. And um, actually, affray is a very affray is a very, <laughs> very good word for it because I don't think it's so much civil disobedience as. Uh, a small group of people behaving like absolute shits on the day. And a fray fits that a little bit better, I think. Yeah, it was certainly ugly. And I've never seen anything like it in my time of covering protests all around the world, quite a few in New Zealand and a few overseas. Um, You may have seen a lot worse in your days in uh, Eastern Europe and various other places. Um, But I... uh, Well, I'm I'm not sure I've seen... I'm not sure I've seen people throwing LPG tanks onto fires. Uh, I think that that clear, you know, there was some, the, you know, whatever one thinks of the police, that the attacks on those people who were the police who were lined up against the wall that's being graffitied with chalk and everything was pretty difficult until the, the police with riot shields turned up. You know, they, they were not particularly well. They didn't even have helmets on. They just, you know, there's not a hell of a lot you can do about an LPG tank and a, uh, with a baseball cap. Yeah, that moment when the fire went off and people were throwing things on the fire um, was truly frightening. And um, there were so many people around there. There were kids, there were um, police, obviously, and hundreds of people moving, running around. Um, There were then the firefighters came in to try and uh, douse it down. Some of them were pulled into the melee, Mm. and uh, Mm. we saw um, the fire hoses um, stolen at one point and turned on the police. Um, Later on, uh, Lynn and I went uh, behind the line, so to speak, and walked through um, to take as many pictures as we could. Lynn Greveson, who sub edits uh, the Kaka, is. um... Oh, Robert, how are you? (laughs) Sorry, sorry, Bernard. It's a bit late today. No, no, fantastic to see you. We, we weren't quite expecting you, but it's uh, wonderful that oh, you're well, here. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just a lot you heard. No, that's brilliant. No, no, stay, stay there. We're, we're, we're really pleased that you yeah, made we're it. Just, we're just discussing civil unrest. Sorry, you're just discussing... Civil unrest. Yeah, we are a civil unrest in Wellington, and whether whether it's um, civil disobedience or just an affray. And so 
we've decided we're going to have some T-shirts printed, which is, I ain't afraid of no afraid. Badum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, um, it was a pretty ugly moment there um, to, towards the end. Uh, Lynn and I went behind oh, the... Melee is good too, Greg, yes. yes Melee yes. is good, Yes. This isn't Wordle, for Christ's sake. Oh, you know, I know, I know. Just pretend, pretend it's Wordle, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, Lynn and I went behind the lines to get some uh, pictures. Lynn is the photographer for Getty Images uh, here in New Zealand. And uh, it got quite a bit of uh, coverage overseas, actually, of course, this idea that New Zealand was this perfect place where um, we'd handled COVID absolutely wonderfully and we were full of um, very progressive and um, thoughtful and caring leaders and people and um, this was uh, breaking the um, narrative of who the rest of the world thought we were in New Zealand and uh, fair enough um, and uh, afterwards uh, Lynn and I went after everyone had been cleared out and I've I've never been quite so um, downhearted actually uh, walking around the grounds of uh, Parliament mm-hmm. past the charred remains of the uh, children's playground piles and piles of stinking rubbish, all sorts of paraphernalia all around the place. And uh, uh, I can see why some people, you know, have started to call it um, our January 6th. I don't think it's quite the same Mm -hmm. in that clearly Mm -hmm. these people didn't um, get into Parliament and to the Beehive, although at various points there were lots of threats. And in the first couple of days, there were a couple of attempts to rush the lines and get in. Remember... Uh, a bunch of these people were openly, uh, not just online, but shouting, um, waving signs, um, saying they were going to um, hang uh, various members of the cabinet and obviously the prime minister and members of the media, and uh, they were going to overthrow the government and uh, put in place one that um, removed the mandates. Now, of course, most of the people there wouldn't have adhered to that. And I think a lot of people were, who were there in the first couple of weeks were quite shocked at the type of um, virulent, angry, uh, quite frankly, off their rockers um, stuff that was coming out. And I was I was quite quite interested to hear yesterday that guy Marty, what's his name, the the, the forestry chap from Rotorua, yep. saying that he he only gave him a few hundred dollars, but he got he got quite a lot of publicity around it. And you know he was he was I thought. He did quite a good job of being slightly embarrassed and uh, slightly saying that, um, you know, he, he regretted giving the money. I, I suspect that Russell Coots regrets it. I suspect that Winston Peters regrets it. I don't know whether you heard on Morning Report, there's a very good piece today about, about a bunch of people going over to Wanui Amata and trying to enter to um, enter a marae there and the, and the, and the uh, harpu or iwi there gave them fairly short shot. But there's been a lot also said, Bernard, this week about redemption, and how we re-engage or how we try to re-engage with these people. And the other thing I felt found quite interesting with the post the, the post conversation, if you like, is the understanding of the importance of disinformation and all of this. And I, I think that remains and it fits quite well with the um, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to Ukraine as well, but the toxicity and strength and influence of disinformation is an extraordinary phenomenon. And is it is at the root of the anti-vax and anti-mandate people, much as I kind of agree that mandates are a very, you know, are a very uh, blunt instrument. But the anti-vax stuff is is extraordinary and is deeply rooted in disinformation. Or just we could just say deeply rooted, of course, but that would yeah. be different. Yeah, 
<laughs> yep, no, you're quite right. And um, I'm interested to see um, that there is some moves afoot in New Zealand to try to understand this a bit better. Um, mm. There's been a report um, out uh, out for the Department of Internal Affairs. It was recently done, which um, looked at uh, what was happening in the extreme right part of the uh, uh, Facebookosphere, if you like, in New Zealand. Not just mm-hmm. Facebook, um, Instagram, Telegram, uh, yeah. and and, uh, and even into the nether regions of um, uh, the various uh, sites that uh, are really off off the off the radar. But what um, what we're seeing now is is some engagement finally from the government and the prime minister in uh, looking at trying to understand yeah. what what is going on here. And uh, yeah, well, we've talked we've talked about one one aspect of this that we've talked about that I'm surprised. She, I mean, I understand I to- she is totally brilliant on Facebook. I understand she's a very good marketing person. I understand why she bypasses the media sometimes and goes direct to Facebook. But as we and I think Lynn noticed, Lynn, your the Mrs. Mrs. Hickey noticed the. Um, I'm just. That's going to get. Yeah, you're going to pay for that. Gonna get, um, <laughs> that's, I, I, I did. I, oh yes, fuck off, Peter. I just got a message from them. Um, the um, the uh, you know the the um, the way that her live streams have been co-opted by the anti-vax movement, and and you know she's getting a million, million and a half people watching it. And that's that's been a tremendous audience for them. But you know, one has to give them credit in a sense for sabotaging the prime minister's own messages. But it's very powerful. Yeah, I, I noticed this about um, three or four months ago when I was watching some of these live streams, and I actually asked the prime minister a question about this in her mm. in question time. I, know, I remember. <laughs> uh, and, and I essentially asked because um, she did one at about ten o'clock at night, and she, she was quite tired. And I was like. Yeah, have a rest, you know. Uh, but no, she she did yeah. it, and you're right. It's a double-edged sword. She gets amazing engagement with those people who love her. But I think the mistake was to open up to this cascade of vitriol, which flies down the side of your Absolutely. your Facebook Live. Yeah. And um, did, she, she had. Did, did she say in that Bernard? Did she did she say in that press conference? Not now, Bernard. Not As her usual some, reply. Something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. She she did make a little bit of fun of uh, the fact that I was up late at night watching her on a Facebook live stream, which is fair enough. <laughs> um, uh, but what struck me about that was, even then, she was still trying to get her head around the idea that this could be bad to be in a place where there was this this cascade of misinformation at best, vitriol, hatred. And how it made her, it, it devalued what she was saying. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's the reason it's, it's why. It's very hard. This, this whole, this whole question of, of you know, we, and we've talked a little bit about the story, you know, because it fits with, I think it's God, it's Godwin's law, isn't it, about bad money driving up good, and and I'm afraid that good convers, you know, the answer to bad conversation is not more conversation necessarily. You know, I, Jimmy Wales, my old colleague, believes that it is that, but. I, I just I see time and time again that I'm afraid um, it all just goes to hell. Yeah, um, th- there is some work being done on this in academia in New Zealand. The uh, Te Punaha Matatini group, um, led by Kate Hanna, have di- did a piece on misinformation and disinformation at the end of last year, which started to dig into where where it was happening, um, the volumes. 
And there's also a very good paper that was done by the um, by a group out of London for the Department of Internal Affairs last year, which showed effectively that uh, for each of these dif- disinformation producers, um, New-, New Zealand uh, had a rate of following and of engagement which was three times higher per page per head of population as in the United States and Australia and the UK. So we have a particular issue with uh, mis- and disinformation here. You could argue that's because... You know, there isn't much else to do here in New Zealand. <laughs> That's what we do. I don't quite buy that. But certainly um, the f- Facebook has a particularly uh, deep and r- rich connection with about 4 million New Zealanders. We're talking about um, upwards of an hour or two a day uh, on Facebook. And um, in my, my view is not to uh, try to, you know, remove the offending posts, but to actually address the algorithms, which are, yeah. are the energy and the uh, direction behind not just Facebook, but YouTube and TikTok, which elevate the most extreme content and spread it as widely as they can to increase engagement. It's purely about um, making sure people spend as much time as possible um, steering into their news feeds to get as much advertising revenue as possible. Those algorithms are like the secret source for these social media. And there are moves afoot in other countries, uh, initially around the issue of protecting children uh, from extreme content. But um, as we go on, I think it uh, extends out to not only misinformation around things, public health issues like COVID, but also just the realisation that this is a, I think, a national security threat. I wrote a column about this a couple of Mm, weeks ago mm, and got some grief from people saying I was being a bit over the top and uh, these these were normal New Zealanders and um, a very senior (laughs) former cabinet minister uh, had had a a bit of a go at me saying, you know, um, we should engage with these people, we should talk talk with them. Um, When actually I think there is a certain element and by the end they were the element there up against the police who were... Very yeah. aggressive mm-hmm. and violent. Some, frankly, were mentally ill, and uh, there was no prospect. Did of you course, di- did you diagnose them, Bennett? Ah, uh, well. Are you are you are you doing an on the spot journalistic <laughs> no, journalistic um, uh, diagnosis there? Yeah, I think I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm a. I'm a. I'm a. Uh, I can diagnose. Um, uh, mental illness uh, in everyone from a distance, but um, there were a few people. I, who I, were... I'm not a psych- I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'll take a look. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, But certainly there there were some issues there. Uh, not everyone, mm-hmm. and of course, um, you know, there's a spectrum. But uh, they, it obviously got violent, and uh, as we saw with January 6, if you're not prepared, and um, and if there is some connection to larger forces, bad things can happen. And uh, unless you're prepared and and take these things seriously, they do. And uh, yeah, well, Bernard, I think there's there's also the issue of public health aspect in this. I think just I, I absolutely agree with everything you said about well, not that not that our job is to agree with each other, but since I since I said that I you know because I'd driven from Whangarei to Kohukohu, I would um, I now knew the everything that was going on in the north. It was striking. Um, we did drive past a couple of you know upside down New Zealand flags and some absolutely fabulous signage. One of which said two shots and you're a genetically modified organization or GMO, a genetic organism. Yep. And then another one, which I hadn't seen before, which was MAGA, make a dern go away. 
Um, you know, and and it's, there's a lot of a surprising amount of that. It doesn't. It isn't just the normal. Um, you know, come to our evangelical church. It was real nasty, nasty stuff. And it's. I, I was there was a very good speaking of how disinformation gets out there. Kirsty Johnson this week in the in the uh, stuff wrote an absolutely superb piece about uh, mum influence mum influencers uh, with their very large followings and how, influ- how influential they've been in spreading these messages. That's that's right, and um, you had an interesting uh, uh, collection of groups from all over the place. You had yo- yoga mm-hmm. mums and um, uh, crystal waving. Um, uh, groups along with um, uh, some some pretty pretty tough character <laughs> tough tough characters yeah yeah and um, whereas we know we should really only get from get your information from middle aged Pakeha men who uh, are you know have have you know been journalists all their lives and and from proper academics like Paul or Robert yeah no that's um that is a fair comment and uh, but but when you look at um, those people um, deeply connected into the uh, Māori, Pacifica, and what you'd, what you'd call the um, uh, those people who are struggling financially in our society, none of them mm-hmm. were connected to these groups in any substantial way. There were one or two outliers. Uh, Marama Fox mm-hmm. and uh, Tariana Turia uh, mm-hmm. became allied or aligned, but even the likes of... Um, up north, uh, the former um, uh, co-leader of the... Um, uh, Do you mean Tamaiti? No, uh, Tam- Tamaiti has also been pretty pretty tough against yeah. it. Um, now I'm having a mind blank on the uh, former uh, parliamentarian who's now up in Auckland and did a fantastic job of organising um, organizing vaccination. Do you, mean Jamie, do, you mean, do you mean Jamie Lee Curtis, as I think of him? Uh, <laughs> No, I don't. no, it'll it'll. Thank you very much to one of the, yeah. to the participants. You you knew what, it was yeah. in my brain somewhere, and you were mm-hmm. able to fish in, pull it out, and stick it into our comment thread. Yeah, don't if, don't don't swim around in that brain too much. Too, it's too quite much. Dangerous. No, no. Thank you, SD. So I mean, so so it wasn't as if this was you know a, a clear demarcation between the haves and the have-nots. Um, I certainly didn't see um, those those people who are really connected into those communities who represent mm. large numbers of people and are, um, I suppose you'd call, you know, they're not big fans of the government or and certainly clash with them regularly. John Tamahiri is another one who's um, uh, not widely loved on either side of politics, but um, clearly uh, connected to their communities and really aggressively pushing back at the misinformation. But it was interesting to hear the Prime Minister. I, I don't know if you saw the Prime Minister's... Um, quite impromptu comments about 5.30 on Wednesday afternoon while, yes, the thing, yeah. Yeah, while the thing was being broken up by the police. There had just been that bad fire. There'd been two or three police badly injured and taken to hospital. She came out, um, she was quite shaken, but also very um, firm in her resolve to say, essentially, they are not us, that um, we will have to move on from this. And the you know the vast vast majority of New Zealanders are, are don't um, agree with these stances, but rightly she said you know at a point of time when things settle down once we've passed the peaks once the hospitals have started to settle down, we are going to have to look again at this a to do an investigation yeah. of what went wrong, but also to you know reach out to people who feel so alienated, 
And, you know, there are some people who you'll never be able to pull back out of the rabbit hole, but there will be some who'll go, yeah, you know what, I got COVID and it wasn't good. And my auntie got really, really sick. And turns out the scientists were right. And we wish we had taken no, abso- 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 Absolutely, Bernard. I, I think this is, it is going to be interesting. I think also the media has a really important role in this because lots of those disaffected or disconnected communities have no real media connection. They're not going to be newspaper subscribers as such. They may watch uh, TV and Z and but so on, but I think Facebook is very important to them. And there needs to be good quality content in there as as, as well as, um, you know, just the recommendations and friends and people people doing their own research. But I, I also, been, you, you sent me something I thought was very interesting today. If we maybe deal with this briefly mm-hmm. before we move on to Ukraine and Robert. But the idea that somehow the media has been bought by the government or, the, or you know, there's either that that this public interest journalism fund, which you know I was involved in a bit, and that's $55 million. It's actually $75 million, but the $20 million of it's been withheld at Chris Farfoy's discretion to some extent for the first couple of years. Um, I don't believe that, 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 New Zealand, that New Zealand media is in the government's pocket. However, the way that that's been allocated does require investigation and analysis and also justification, not, not so much investigation. And I thought it was very interesting, the story you sent me today, about a select committee hearing with the chairman of um, New Zealand on air, because uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, I, even before they did this, I think New Zealand on air is a remarkably interesting model for how to give public and let's say public, not government money, but public money and public support to important aspects of of culture. I think it's a really good instrument. It has a very good vetting system, and it has a very good system for assessing the value of grants, but. It is it, and, and they will that, that the people at NZ on Air will freely admit that journalism is a new area for them. And I, I just think there's got to, you know, journalism has to take a look at itself. Um, you know, Henry Cook was in in visiting those the, the protests all the time. Mark Dalder, I think, wisely, as far as I know, didn't put himself in the middle of it. But um, you know, you did. Barry Soper even did. Uh, and and I think everybody didn't you know the, the trying to reconnect or connect with those group of people people with a res, with some responsible journalism would be beneficial I think yeah it, it was interesting um, today there was a um, a Q and A between uh, readers and some subscribers of the New Zealand Herald yeah. and um, the main editors at the New Zealand Herald Shane Curry mm. um, Murray um, uh, Kirkness and yeah, Murray. Maria. Yeah. Mariana uh, Alexander, uh, about those funds and the funds that NZME uh, was taking and using. Um, and we did get a, a really robust discussion. Uh, a lot of readers Good. were saying, we, don't, we didn't know where this money came from, what it was being spent on. There was a lot of focus uh, on the requirement that any of the money would go to work, which was in line with the principles of the treaty. Uh, which um, people, I think, uh, mm-hmm. jumped on as some sort of proof that it was all going to be, um, you know, a, a woke um, love fest for the government, which I think is is far from the true truth. Yeah, well, I think else. that's that's I, I think that's really interesting, and that's exactly what my brother, you know, who everybody loves here, especially Mr. Anderson, loves the stories about my brother. My brother thinks that as well that I was involved in some kind of woke conspiracy to set up. Um, you know, a fund that was that was going to promote these ideas. And what people forget is, and funnily enough, this week I read an absolutely fabulous section in a book by somebody called Matthew Palmer, who I immediately assumed was Jeffrey Palmer's son, because there can only be two intelligent Palmers in the whole of New Zealand. Um, and it was about the New Zealand Constitution. And it confirmed my belief that just from 
living here now again for a couple of years after a long time, that the truth, whether we like it or not, whether us grumpy Pakehas, not that I'm a grumpy Pakeha, of course, like it or not, the Treaty of Waitangi is deeply embedded in New Zealand law and legislation now because of decisions by the government, but particularly decisions by the judiciary and various incorporations in law. This is this is a this has happened over the last thirty years. It hasn't happened since Jacinda. And whether they like it or not, every dollar that the government spends does in any field does have to have some treaty compliance these days. That's right, uh, and uh, these uh, clauses are increasingly being written into pretty much any government contract, any yes, um, any uh, new arrangement, any sort of uh, a foundational document of a new university or a new government department or whatever. Some of it, I think, frankly, is um, box-ticking stuff that no one really thinks will change anything. But um, it is useful, I think, to, to be in there. And what... Some of the money uh, is being spent on, and by the way, you can you can see every single project which is being yes. funded and detailed on the NZ on Air website. The grants are announced to everyone, and I I think that's one thing that maybe the um, the commercial media companies who have received the money could have been better at is very openly saying, the, "Here's where I, the money's I think that's going." That's absolutely correct. Yeah, and, I think that's a really good idea. But I don't, I don't believe that there would be. So I, I don't entirely agree, having been involved with it at the very start. But I'm not entirely sure that they're all going to exactly the right things. But this is a brand new project. But I don't think that there would be any reason why you couldn't get funding or use some of that funding, for example to do the kind of long-form journalism about, say, Three Waters that is essential to explain that project because the, the, the amount of misinformation about Three Waters that is being... I mean, I read a, I read a piece this week by that former minister, Barry Brill, um, and it was filled with misconceptions about how Three Waters might work, although it is also true that the government, I don't think, has done a brilliant job of explaining Three Waters yet. Um, but just just going back to misinformation for a minute, because I think we, we, we want to get back to Robert, but... Um, what do you think? So media needs to explain much better what it's using the NZN on air money for. It needs to understand that it, that it isn't taking the government's shilling, as it were, or you know, that there's not strings attached. But what, what do you think media can do to reach out to these people, from, not necessarily to give them a place in New Zealand's leading uh, Friday afternoon blog, <laughs> but uh, podcast, but what, you know, what can we do to, what, what, what can New Zealand media do to reach out to those people a little better? Uh, I mean, I, I um, take the view um, we just have to do great journalism and ask our readers to pay for it. Um, mm. And I think part of the uh, frustration and the errors here um, are involved with the way uh, that we've seen some advertising and sponsorship creep into the edges of um Mm. Um, pure journalism. Now, the best example of that, we got some detail on this week, for example. Kainga Order um, paid for uh, some uh, public relations, um, what you typically call a puff piece, that went into the New Zealand Herald's One Roof section on real estate. It was mm. a piece um, commissioned by um, some public relations people inside Kainga Order to highlight the work of Kaingaora's um, Hobsonville Land Company and uh, in doing so highlighted the uh, involvement of a, a Labour Party candidate 
At that point, she wasn't a candidate, but she was about to put her hand up, and Kaigoro knew it. And uh, when this was pointed out, um, they looked to downplay it. Now, um, the big problem here with this story right from the start was that uh, NZME did not identify that this article had been paid exactly. for by Kaigoro. Absolutely, that is... Uh, so I, I've done a lot of work in this area of trust with an American thing called the Trust Project, which people might want to have a look at sometime. Um, that is the, one of the biggest issues for, for, for readers and consumers is who is paying for this thing that's being put in front of me and, and how is it being explained to me? Even if And, and what's also weird about it is there's a big subliminal aspect here, which is often I don't mind it being there, but I'd like to know. And if I choose to look, I want to know. Now, shall we... Shall we a um, couple of things, Bernard. Somebody's... Um, Alerted, alerted us that they have been su- submitting some questions and do we answer them? And the answer to that, of course, yes, we do try to answer them. But I think we should segue to, um, if you don't mind, to uh, Robert, because one of the interesting aspects, and we'll get into the, to the meat of the Ukraine thing, but disinformation is at the heart of the Ukraine story as well. Um, Farad Manzu at the, at the uh, uh, New York Times did an excellent piece today, th- this week, so suggesting that Putin is actually losing the information war against Zelensky because Zelensky is so clever and the Ukrainians are being so clever. I, I feel we're still only at the very beginning of it, but um, it-, it is also worth mentioning. I, I uh, in my spin-off piece this week, I mentioned a friend of mine, Natalia Antalava, who's the editor of a site called the called Coda Story, and Coda Story has just relaunched its disinformation section partly because it wants to expose what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've also had this week, um, uh, Marianne Le Pen has had to apologize for the release last week, I think it was, of the one and a half million um, brochures which showed her shaking hands with um, Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Putin has dabbled in the extreme right, particularly in the misinformation area. You know, he supports Mar- has supported Mar- Marianne Le Pen. He's supported AFD in Germany. Mm. We have to remember just how pernicious he is, and how cynical he is, and you know the the interference and in, the interference in um, uh, in um, you know the 2016 elections, uh, you know, was just the starter. You've got the you know the the internet agency in St. Petersburg. You know, Putin knows. I mean, we have to remember there's asymmetric. In fact, let's bring Robert in because to me, the disinformation space is part of what what the Russians have perfected this form of hybrid war where you actually run on a war front on multiple fronts, even before you pull the trigger on anything. And it includes disinformation, isolation, um, you know, these the, the nullification, if you like, of Ukraine that he's per- perpetrated and this whole idea that they're a bunch of drug addicts and Nazis. You just get these words going in there. Robert, are you, are you still there? To, is this all right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm listening carefully. Um, the interesting thing is uh, I absolutely agree what you're saying that, you know, the Putin's government have been sort of um, uh, quite a leader in this area of disinformation and particular backing uh, far-right nationalist populist figures that you mentioned, like Le Pen, etc. Um, in the case of the Ukraine crisis, um, it's interesting that Putin does seem to be getting the worst of it uh, in terms of trying to put forward uh, different, if you like, uh, versions of reality, um, mm-hmm. it, and I think there's two things at work here. Uh, firstly, I think Zelensky is a skilled communicator. He's got a background. Um, he's a former comedian. He's a, a stage performer, 
A lot of people doubted he had substance, but I think he's risen to the occasion somewhat. But he has got those great communication skills. And I think what he has done from the from the off um, has basically um, put pressure uh, on a Putin government that was already under pressure from these strong charges that it was preparing to invade, something he didn't really want aired. Um, but what I find interesting is that the Putin government is actually very vulnerable on this area. It's, it's one thing to interfere in pluralist democracies. Um, it's quite another thing to maintain such a narrative when you're at war with another country, which basically has got your number. Ukrainians know what the Russian, uh, the Mr. Putin, have been up to. So they know better than anyone else. And in a sense, they're probably less naive about yes, the Putin deeply. regime than many players in Western Europe. Um, Absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, uh, this is one of the ironies about him accusing Zelensky and his government of being Nazis and how he's carrying out this denazification is that he's been doing everything possible to support Nazis Absolutely. and neo-Nazis on the international stage. In fact, he presents himself as leader of the world conservatives. So that that's interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I, I have a feeling um, there's... there's that, yeah, a lot of Russians do swallow the line because they rely on the state media, um, the Russian state media. This week, well, not this week, in the last few days, you, I'm sure you're Bernard aware that Putin has cracked down and stopped the functioning of the few remaining reasonable... Well, the two, people. yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. So he's just, just, so just to be clear, he shut down a thing like overnight called uh, Rain TV, TV mm. Rain which has been a, a, a wonderful organization which has tr trod some very difficult um, paths. But what was very funny about the um, the uh, TV rain, and this is like, it's a little bit like Brexit, but everything in Russia is a metaphor. And uh, TV rain for its last few minutes on air broadcast um, the, the Kirov Ballet performance of uh, Swan Lake, which of course is the, you know one of the most famous Russian ballets. And of course, it was there because when Mikhail Gorbachev was the coup against Mikhail, the attempted coup against Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, when Yeltsin came came and went out went outside the Duma and um, the White House, the, that's the Moscow White House, and um, kind of saved Mikhail Gorbachev, the coup plotters played Swan Lake uh, on <laughs> Russian television at that time. So everything is a is a metaphor, and you've also seen. Echo Moscow, which has yeah. uh, been an independent radio station, and I suspect this week we'll see um, Moscow the Times. News, yeah, yeah. Moscow Times and the and also the um, uh, Gazeta, the, the Novia Gazeta, which yeah. is uh, run by the Nobel Peace Prize winning co-winner this year, uh, will probably be shut down. And what's great about the, the if you look at apparently if you look at the um, uh, TV, no, the, the old signal from TV Rain, the authority, the Russian authorities, it says. This, this organization has been shut down because it's a foreign agent and it's been describing the, military, the special military intervention as an invasion and a war. So they've you know, put their hands up and they know that we know why it's been done. Do we think that there's going to be any sort of move to martial law in, in, uh, in Russia? And is there any real prospect of some sort of you know, overthrow or uprising that could get rid of Putin? There's, a, there's some extraordinary evidence that's developing. I know we've already discussed the warnings that Putin received before he invaded about the difficulties of invading Ukraine. And of course, there'll be a few people in Moscow now saying, told you so. Um, 
But there's some other indications that not all is well um, from Putin's point of view. Uh, and that is that um, there was a, a, an assassination squad, and this was reported in the Washington Post today, that was dispatched, presumably at the instigation of Mr. Putin's regime, to assassinate Zelensky. This was a Chechen group. And the Chechen leader is a big fan of Putin, and he provided a number of uh, people to do this job. Uh, Mr. Zelensky announced in the last 24 hours that that group, which was dispatched and made it as far as the outskirts of Kiev, uh, was intercepted and neutralized, in other words, killed. Um, now, the defense minister was asked, well, how did you manage to do this? And this was the revelation. Disgruntled members of the FSB, which Mr. Putin used to direct, absolutely disagree with the invasion of of Ukraine. And they tipped Slensky's government wow. off about the Chechen group. Now, what was interesting was that Zelensky made this public. You know, the, his government have openly said they were warned by elements within the Russian government against what Mr. Putin actually mm. wanted. And, um, you know, with an authoritarian regime, it's you don't usually get... It's not like a democracy where you, you get the move sort of basically telegraphed in advance when someone's in trouble. Um, but it... Think bits and pieces develop, and I, I think Mr. There's a degree of feverishness now and desperation about Putin that suggests that you know the evidence is mounting that there's quite considerable resistance. Another thing yeah. that's achieving very bad news for Putin is that you, you may be following this, and it comes back to Peter's earlier point about how combating disinformation or attempts to, and that is that the Ukrainians have very shrewdly allowed captured Russian soldiers to communicate with their families on the social media and then posted it. And all the soldiers are saying that they were completely lied to yeah. about the campaign. Everything they've been told was wrong. Mm. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's a shrewd uh, move by the Ukrainian authorities because all this stuff is being viewed in, in Russia, presumably, mm. on the social media and um, the Ukrainians are imploring the parents of these young soldiers to come and collect them and take them home. So yeah. uh, that probably won't happen, of course. But the point is that this is this is clever messaging by the Ukrainians. But it's also very dangerous for Putin because, as we yeah. said, that reinforces the deep deep sense of unease that's existing within the military before the campaign. Now, according to Ukrainians, I don't know how reliable this is. Russia has lost 6,000 in the first eight days of the war. If that figure's anywhere near accurate, um, that's extremely dangerous for Putin, given the fact that... Yeah, one of the things that's also going to be cannon fodder. Is there, there is some... You go, Peter. Yeah, Robert, there's, there's also a very... Just to, it's, Sort of to address some of Bernard's constant criticism of social media, there are some fabulous threads on Twitter about the condition of the Russian vehicles, including in one particular case, the uh, standard of the quality of the tyres that are on some of these vehicles. And it would appear from what the this, what this source that I was looking at was talking about was um, their tyres are delaminating and exploding while they're 
trying to get through the through the Ukrainian mud. I I find that extraordinarily hard to believe that the Russians aren't prepared, given everything, given Napoleon, given Hitler. But but maybe they're not. I, I think also the the you know your comment about uh, martial law. How would you know the difference? Three people can turn in. Yes, that's, we're losing you a little bit, Peter, but your, your question about martial law and, and how we can tell yeah. the difference is, is right. Um, I'm curious too, and now that Russians yeah. are seeing the huge queues outside um, ATMs, they're trying to pull their savings out, out of banks, we're going to see very shortly prices of imported goods or the availability of imported goods not there because of the strength of the sanctions, which... I mean, since we all last spoke, that's the sort of new news, if you like, obviously, apart from the um, increasingly uh, um, indiscriminate uh, shelling and bombing that's going mm-hmm. on. But the new news has been these um, quite quite aggressive financial sanctions uh, on mm. the, the Russian banks and the Russian central bank, which caused the uh, ruble to collapse, but also to, call these, to cause these runs on... Uh, the uh, European arms of Russian banks and, of course, the Russian banks themselves. Robert, do you, do you have a sense of, of uh, whether th- these signs of financial distress and rising prices and shortages of goods could could be the thing that tip, tips it all over for mm. Putin? Or, or with any luck, the, the, the seizure of various super yachts around the world. Ah, yes, that's right. It could be, but I think in the interim, I think Putin's putting tremendous pr- pressure for quick results. And we've heard today a very worrying development um, that Russian troops shelled the biggest uh, nuclear power station in Europe, which would, uh, and there's explosions around uh, the power station in question, uh, which made, led to a statement by the Ukrainian foreign ministry. I mean, this is reasonably, this news came through in the last couple of hours. And it, it seems to me that, Mr. Putin's got it in his mind, and if we're to believe the conversation he recently had with Mr. Macron, that he, he you know, he, he's going for broke. He's got to try to speed things up before some of these economic consequences really, absolutely, really yeah, he may take have a, firm hold. So he's he, he got to try to reactivate his blitzkrieg, even if it means, um, you know, taking high risk measures like uh, apparently shelling the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. And well, at uh, least, this is at, extremely at least, reckless. Yeah, at least he knows what the prevailing winds are. So maybe he's got a completely different idea of going nuclear. <laughs> yeah, but the thing, that, the thing that worries me, Peter, is that, you know, Article 5 under NATO, if, if, if they damage that nuclear power plant and radioactive clouds start floating over large parts of Europe, will... You know, NATO's already indicated it might interpret a cyber attack by Russia upon any of the NATO countries as it, as, as grounds for invoking Article 5. It might also be uh, a debate about if large radioactive clouds, which sort of make um, uh, Chernobyl look like a poor relation in terms of its impact. Mm, yeah. I think there'll be tremendous pressure in NATO to stop, you know, just imagine the headlines and the discussions within Europe. They say, for God's sake, this lunatic's got to be stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, just let, let me ask you two questions about that, about that, Robert, because um, one is Bill Browder, the author of Red Notice, is an excellent book, 
uh, who was a, a form, you know, used to run Renaissance Capital, I think, in Moscow, is regarded as being uh, Putin's number one foreign in, in, enemy. Um, you know, has has created these uh, Magnitsky acts around the world to uh, combat Russian oligarchs and Russian interference in, in various places, particularly in the financial area. But he reckons that um, in that agreement that Ukraine signed to give up its nuclear weapons, that there was a commitment in there that if if Ukraine were to be broken up in any way, that the Western powers would come in. And he, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting question as to whether that. There is already an obligation other than in the NATO um, Clause 5. That's a very interesting question. And that agreement you're referring to, the Budapest Agreement, Mm. um, Russia, the UK and the United States were signatories to that agreement. And that's an interesting dimension to watch because I, I, I think Mr. Putin has deliberately taken the gloves off, massive shelling of civilians, um, now apparently prepared to attack nuclear plants. Um, we don't know that. It may have been incompetence. It may have been a mistake. So we should say deliberately attacking. But it appears the early reports suggest something serious is developing. If that's the case, um, Mr. Putin is gambling that he can do all this without the conflict spilling over and affecting NATO. And I'm beginning to wonder... If Absolutely. If, that can, if NATO can stay out of it. Just, Robert, yeah, so on, would, on you, would, you, would you do some research about that? Please do some research about that question and come back next week. And also the one about no-fly zones, which I think Bernard's about to ask yeah, you, which that's, seems that's, to me to see, having been involved at one point, not, not flying them, but reporting on the, the two no-fly zones that existed after the first Gulf War, or in fact they were in place just before the first Gulf War in southern Iraq to supposedly protect what were then called the Marsh Arabs, and then in the north to protect the Kurds. I mean, you were dealing with a very different beast in for, in the form of the Iraqi uh, Air Force than you are with trying to say nobody should be in the air over, over Ukraine. But please, yes, please I, answer that, Robert, because I know other people are asking it. I th- personally, I think the Americans will be, and I, all the public indications suggest this, loath to do that because they believe it will be put them in direct confrontation, the same message is coming out of NATO, uh, with the with the Russians, but I think there is some concerted effort behind the scene to drastically improve the air capabilities, the military air capabilities of Ukraine. And yes. um, uh, one interesting thing is um, there's now an investigation, a legal international legal investigation. I think it's by the International Criminal Court into whether war crimes are being committed. If any early indications suggest they are, that may increase the pressure again for NATO to get involved to protect civilians. But true, but let's let's remember that neither the United States nor Russia recognise the ICC. No, they don't. But a number of Europeans do. In fact, virtually but, all the EU countries are signed up, including our countries got, signed up as well. Since we've got some people a bit irritated that they've asked excellent questions that we haven't answered yet, Sorry. and they don't they don't realise that we haven't. Um, you know, got a producer and everything, and you know. Uh, also, I should be clear for, for, the, for the newcomers because there's a, a huge number of you, and I really we're all both very grateful. This uh, is Robert Patman, who is a uh, professor of international history and international politics at um, Otago University. So, Bernard, do you want to? Should we deal with some of the questions? Because I imagine some of them go to Robert as well. Yes. Um, in particular, I, I'm interested in. There's been a few questions uh, as well about. Um, how NATO will respond, and in particular, the big change in the last week has been Germany's 
quite substantial decision to spend an extra 100 billion euros building up its military and also sending direct to Ukraine um, lethal aid, if you like, in the form of all of these various uh, missiles aimed at tanks and planes. Um, How possible is it that Germany or or Germany and France and the EU zone uh, countries could take their own action within NATO if they don't think the Americans are being tough enough? I think they would try to work in concert with the Biden administration, who they have a lot of time for. And I think that they rightly argue that if they can stay in, you know, in close lockstep, so to speak, their message will be that much more effective. What is interesting to me is that there are signs that Mr. Putin has completely misread and overestimated the decline of the West. The people around Putin I believe for some time the West is in irreversible decline, a bit like the Brezhnev regime at the end of the 70s after America lost in Vietnam. Oh, America's finished it. We're going to supplant them as a global power. I don't think Putin believes that, but I think he believes he could do a quick catch-up job and perhaps, you know, build a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe while America's, you know, divided at home and the Europeans look weak. What has astonished them has been Germany's response. And, um, uh, you know... Putin does have a view of international politics, which is based in the 19th century. It's, it's like the great game. That's how he sees politics. It's only between great powers. I'm afraid that's unraveling. You know, Germany is what, the second or biggest third exporter in the world. is a huge power if it wants to be. And there are indications now they've had enough with Putin. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think there's a cumulative frustration there. And the EU potentially, it always interests me that China... Russia and the United States always mock the EU. Um, and it's easy to mock because it's a very ambitious project, pooling sovereignty. But each of those countries collectively has more clout than they do on their own. So yeah, it's, interesting, it's interesting. To, it's in their interest to mock them. I think it's also interesting, Robert, not to interrupt you, but just the, um, uh, the, the Macron view in this is going to be very interesting because, you know, Putin has taken Macron for a ride, wasted his time, told him that things today are going to get much worse. I, I yeah, would be, yeah. you know, and, and of course France is not in the NATO command structure. You know, you could you could imagine France uh, doing something a little outside NATO auspices in this. I think. Yeah, it's interesting that conversation, the readout apparently that was given um, on you know the French side was that Putin quite bluntly told Mr. Putin to stop lying and stop lying to himself. <laughs> and uh, um, so it was. <laughs> Quite a robust conversation. I think Macron has reached the sort of German position where he's had enough, and uh, he, he realised. I think he feels he's been played. He probably has. And um, you know, I, 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 the other thing is they are very aware that the Russian economy is already under severe strain, even before mm. these sanctions. This is not, you know, Russia is underperformed economically. It's got enormous resources and should be one of the leading economies in the world. But it isn't, unfortunately, for Russia at the moment. So can it sustain this military effort in economic terms? I'm not sure. So the next um, sort of question for um, all of us really is what more could Russia do if it decides it wants to punish Europe for whatever moves Europe makes? And I'm, I'm sort of stunned, actually, that at the moment... There are these pipelines going across Ukraine from Russia to Germany and the rest of Eastern Europe full of gas and oil. It's still flowing. <laughs> and I can't quite work mm. out why haven't the Russians thought, well, you know, we can really 
cause grief for their economy, if they're causing grief for our economy, we can just turn off this gas and gas and, and all, given we're not getting paid for it. Well, I, I, I think that, as I understand it, they're still getting hard currency for, for yeah. their gas and oil exports, aren't they? That's yes, one sir. thing that hasn't been exempted from the, 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 the sanctions that have been applied. One of the things that's cropped up this week in the financial markets, and I've, I've done two or three um, big long posts on it this week, is that even though the attempt to carve out the oil and gas from the financial sanctions uh, was made by Europe and the United States, the private sector, so intermediaries, traders, shippers, insurers, have actually done a sort of a shadow sanction pullback from dealing with Russian cargoes. And the thing I pointed out yesterday was that the discount between Ural's crude, the Russian stuff that's traded on international markets, and Brent crude has blown out to its highest levels since um, the end of communism because so many of the traders don't want to have anything more to do with the Russian oil, in part because they fear getting caught in secondary sanctions by the mm -hmm. US and Euro European authorities, but also because, um, you know, in, in some cases they can't get insurance, and not just insurance for the physical movement of these cargoes uh, out of the Black Sea ports, but also um, some of the, um, the financial derivatives which are used in these processes, again, mm. um, could involve intermediaries who are subject to the sanctions, even though the physical payments are not. And that's the, that's the concern here, is that trying to carve out the oil and gas from the financial sanctions could end up rebounding on um, global financial markets, but also mean that both the Russians and the Europeans are cut off from the oil, gas and the money that comes from it. Mm. I think that's yeah, it was uh, very interesting. Very interesting, Bernard the, and Robert. The uh, uh, an oil uh, an oil tanker from um, from um, uh, Russia had to go back from Britain after the union the union labour force declined to unload it. <laughs> yeah, and the the Brits have um, apparently ordered their ports not to allow uh, Russian ships in, and more than half mm. of the world's container fleets, Maersk, um, Hapag Lloyd, uh, uh, ONE. And MSC have uh, stopped taking bookings to and from Russia because of the mm. um, not just the financial risks, but also there's a reputational risk involved there now. Um, there's a good question from one of our our participants on Poland, uh, Robert. What what are the risks here that Poland, um, being closer to Russia and having a much uglier history with Russia and some pretty um, tense relations with Russia over the years? Uh, that they could take some sort of precipitative action which widens the conflict? Um, I think there's a real strength of feeling. It's a good question because there's real strength of feeling in Poland, but there is in many other, um, the Baltic states as well as the other Eastern European countries, particularly those with memories of Russian interference, in, uh, Soviet interference in the past, I should say. Um, I, I think the Poles will be anxious to stay within the NATO framework, though, what is interesting is that President Zelensky said they were getting something like 16,000 volunteers to come and fight from overseas in the country. Now, where are those volunteers coming from? Um, there was rumours about this even before the invasion, um, because although they're NATO members, 
they can act bilaterally. I mean, both the United States and Britain have mm. acted bilaterally and given on off their own bat, not within the NATO framework, assistance uh, to um, the Ukraine. So, uh, you know, it's it, it's a really good question because the longer this goes on, the more chance, given the unpredictability of war, uh, that other parties will get involved. I, I think it was always a big ask that the conflict could be surgically confined to the Ukraine when you've got tremendous mm. spillover from the conflict mm. into the neighbourhood. I mean, there's, was it you know, a million people have now left um, uh, and largely gone to Poland from the Ukraine. There's real strength of feeling. You've also got people travelling the opposite direction. Ukrainians have been working in Eastern Europe, such as in Poland, returning to some, you know, some of the males returning to fight. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think the question is a really good one. Uh, I think the Polish government will try to stay within the NATO framework. But, you know, um, this thing, as we see with conflicts, uh, governments are not always in complete control mm. of these situations. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a real prospect that this conflict could widen quite dramatically. And and just uh, we haven't really touched on the China angle uh, here, which for New Zealand, as it's as our largest trading partner, is more um, sort of slightly scary in an immediate sense. Um, we've had some uh, comments from Russia, sorry, from China about the Russian. Uh, they call it special military operations. <laughs> They've gone with the yeah. with the with the Russian description. Uh, how has uh, China coped with it this week? Have they uh, cuddled up a bit more or backed away a bit more? What's your feeling? I think there's signs that the Chinese leadership are divided over this. Uh, there's certainly people who seem to be very sympathetic to what Mr. Putin is doing. I'm not sure they're in the majority, though, because a lot of the Chinese, there are Chinese leaders and there's been um, some statements, uh, um, uh, there's certainly been some uh, views within Beijing um, that what Mr. Putin is doing is basically tearing up not only um, international law, but the norms of uh, Treaty Westphalia, where the, the notion of sovereign states and, um, and the non-interference in domestic affairs, and China has a big stake in this. So I, I think that both China and India... Um, have been trying to keep trying to play have you know was it a bob both ways really they're trying to be oh yes we understand your concerns um uh mr putin but it's very dangerous what you're doing and please resolve this by uh, the other thing is the chinese have a big stake in ukraine mm. more than i think it's Absolutely. more than 10 billion dot yeah, investment yeah and, yeah, and they, they did they did they did make a, an offer i don't know how serious this week to to, to join mediation and to, 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 to run mediation. I mean, that would be a tremendous position, of course, and a great diplomatic success for China if they were able to get in that position. Yeah, and I, but I think, Miss, I think uh, President Zelensky might be a bit uneasy about that because I think many Ukrainians would worry. I mean, there was a bit of co internal controversy when they went to the talks in Belarus, which is party. Mm. Um, uh, there was a bit of domestic unease about that. I think uh, President Zelensky would risk his domestic popularity if he accepted um, mediation by another authoritarian state, which could effectively determine the destiny of, of a democracy. So I, I don't think he'll be keen on that one. But, um, yeah, I, I, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I actually think that China, I think Mr Putin is becoming a major embarrassment for China. 
China, they don't regard Mr. Putin's regime as a co-equal superpower or anything mm. like that. Uh, they, you know, and I, I think increasingly, as Mr. Putin seems to go for broke, um, he's not only becoming increasingly isolated. Which, by the way, the Chinese Chinese do not want that isolation because they see themselves as a global economic power. So they won't want to align themselves too closely with Mr. Putin because it could affect the Chinese project of mm. becoming you know, a truly impressive global economic superpower. Except was one of the most That was one of the interesting things that happened overnight actually. The the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, which is the uh, Beijing set up um, rival to the uh, World Bank and the Asian uh, Development Bank. Development Bank. Yeah, yeah. which um, New Zealand has a very small stake in, but it's uh, the biggest uh, shareholder is, is Beijing with 26.5%. They actually announced last night that they wouldn't do any more new deals with either Russia or Belarus. So this is um, you know, effectively an investment bank controlled by Beijing saying they wouldn't have anything more to do mm. With, um, mm. with Russia or Belarus. And even though some of the um, less outwardly focused uh, Chinese banks are, you know, uh, working with the Russians and the Russians are coming to a point where to get any sort of foreign exchange or things from overseas, they're going to have to go through the Chinese. But the Chinese won't want to be seen to be too um, cooperative, particularly those uh, banks. ICBC, for example, um, also said last night they, were, they, weren't, doing, they weren't financing any uh, Russian oil cargoes. So uh, I, th- I, think, I think you're right, Robert, in that they, I, th- I think um, Putin's go-for-broke mentality is a little bit unnerving. Uh, he really is, do you mm. think he's left himself any ways out to survive this? Either he wins or he loses. Um, you do wonder if he's... I don't even think he can win if he does win. Yeah. Let's just say, mm. uh, this is the point that the Lithuanian Prime Minister made earlier in the week. Even if he takes Kiev, even if he overthrows Zelensky, how is he going to establish a pro-Putin government in Ukraine that's credible to 45 million Ukrainians, where there's enormous strength of feeling um, against Russia. It's just not... I think he's politically finished in terms of the project he set himself. And, you know, we've, we've got many examples in the past, in the recent past, of superpowers that have used their military might to overthrow a government but have then failed to implement their political agenda because they run into resistance on the ground from the people they're trying to influence. And I don't see any way that the Ukrainians are going to buy into Mr. Putin's conviction that they're Russians after all. Um, every every indication indicate uh, uh, he's not winning any friends at the moment with his bombing of civilians. And uh, I, I think... Uh, I think this is politically a grim end game now for Mr. Putin. I can't see how he's going to salvage anything from this. Um, he's determined to take run. It, Mr. Macron confirmed this. He's determined to take over the whole country, um, which means it looks like he's determined to have a full-blown insurgency on mm. his hands um, right next to Mother Russia. Well, how far that's going to go down with the population at home and all the costs economically and militarily doesn't look sustainable to me. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Robert. It's wonderful to have you on um, and uh, plenty of action in the last week to talk about. Thank you very much, too, to all of the attendees. So many many great questions. I hope we answered as many as we could. We got there, I think. Um, We seem to be getting more and more every week. That's fantastic. And, Peter, um, so good to have you on from Northland. It was wonderful. Thank you, Peter. Well, you know, now that now that I'm an expert in Northland politics, I'll, we can we can discuss the you know, rural poverty in New Zealand while I just pop inside and have another glass of wine. Cheers, and thank you very All much right. to see you later. Thank to, you so much, everybody, to, to everyone else, and Robert, and who's attended this today. We'll see you later. We'll be back again next week at four o'clock on the Hoon on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey, Peter Bale, and Robert Taffy. Bye.